Pursuant to the Fair Use Doctrine of Section 107 of the Copyright Act of 1976, limited use of copyrighted material is permitted for specific purposes such as criticism, comment, news, reporting, teaching, scholarship, education, and research. This podcast is otherwise copyrighted by the Underground Christian Broadcast. Welcome to part two of this Underground Christian broadcast, because there's just too much to cover in one episode. And this is the part where we discover the instructions that God has given us to us Christians just for this age. Our government has taken a very dark turn, and the clouds of war and retribution are in the air. This time of human history was prophesied all through the Bible, but none more specifically than in the New Testament. Jesus knew what was coming, and he had some advice for his church in those coming days knowing that they would need it. We have been looking at the parallel prophecies of Matthew 24, the letters of Revelation 2 and 3, and the sealed judgments of Revelation 6, because these passages were put there to prepare Christians for a time such as this, if not for this exact time. These three parts of Scripture are all talking about the same events that lead up to the end time period. In Matthew 24, Jesus explicitly tells his disciples what the signs leading up to the end times will look like. In Revelation 2, Jesus writes to the churches about the lead-up to the end times and some of the difficulties that they will face. And in Revelation 6, Jesus shows John some future events that will precede the worst part of these end times. God revealed these prophecies to help the people who will be alive at that time navigate the elaborate lies, clever deceptions, and spiritual confusion that will characterize that time and that age. However, before we continue, I think it's prudent to pause and define some similar but maybe subtly different terms. Most people use the term end times interchangeably with the term great tribulation. These terms are usually fixed within the 70th week of Daniel, which is a week of years that immediately precede the second arrival of Jesus on earth and the establishing of his millennial kingdom. So these three terms, the end times, the 70th week of Daniel, and the great tribulation, are commonly understood to mean essentially the same thing. There's even a fourth term that we could throw in that's also equated with these other three terms, and it's the wrath of God, which occurs during the Great Tribulation. However, it seems very unlikely that these terms refer to exactly the same thing, so that's why we should define them. Let's start with the first term, the end times. This is a period of indeterminate length that precedes the arrival of Jesus Christ the second time. It is the more general of the terms and is therefore the term that's likely to span the greatest length of time. We don't know exactly how long the end times will be, but we do know that it includes the seven years of the 70th week of Daniel. In the case of the 70th week, we know that it is seven years long because it's defined in several locations, including Daniel, but also in Revelation. Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy begins with the rebuilding of the temple and or the walls of Jerusalem, after its fall to the Babylonians, and it ends when Messiah establishes his kingdom on earth, the one that does not end. Now, if you do the math, that means that 490 years after the starting event, Messiah would arrive to establish his kingdom on earth. So there is obviously an issue with the prophecy. Looking deeper, the prophecy says that Messiah would be cut off at the end of the 69th week. That term we translate cut off means killed. In order to be killed in the 69th week and form a kingdom in the 70th week, Messiah would have to be resurrected from the dead. So, in Daniel's prophecy, God clearly signifies that Jesus would be resurrected from the dead. So, with the crucifixion of Jesus Christ in 33 AD, Jesus fulfilled the prophecy that Messiah would be killed in the 69th week of Daniel, but he did not return to establish his kingdom seven years later. So, what happened? There was a pause in the divine calendar that was not explicitly described in the Old Testament. Something that was hidden in the Old Testament, but was revealed in the New Testament, is called a mystery. The mystery was the historic pause in the divine calendar that we now know as the Church Age. The Church was hidden in the Old Testament. The Church Age is the time when the Jews and Gentiles of the world can voluntarily accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, and thereby gain the unearned benefit of two things. Number one, citizenship in Christ's kingdom, and more importantly, adoption into Jesus' ruling family. These people who accept the deal are called Christians. 
To obtain these promises, Christians have to be resurrected to life when Jesus returns, since most Christians will have died by the time he establishes his physical rulership on earth. And that, of course, is part of God's promise, along with eternal life in a new and vastly improved body. Now, the Bible does not define exactly how long this pause in the divine calendar will last, but it does give several hints. The number three factors prominently into the hints. There were two events in the Bible that are actually prophecies concerning how long this church age will last, and there is one separate cryptic comment that also affirms the two prophecies. The first prophecy was acted out by the prophet Jonah when he was eaten by a fish and hung out in its stomach for three days. That prophecy concerned two events, actually. The first was the three days that Jesus would remain in the tomb after his death, after which he would be resurrected just as Jonah was resurrected after he was regurgitated out of the fish onto the beach. The second was the length of time that would transpire for the church age. The second prophecy that alludes to the length of the church age was the three days it took Jesus to be resurrected from the grave. And the key to understanding these two very important prophecies is found in 2 Peter 3, 8, where it says, But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. So if the three days is equivalent to 3,000 years, we have a long time to wait for Jesus to return. But here's the kicker. To the Jews, a day started at sunrise and included any portion of a day. Jesus was killed on a Friday afternoon. That's day one. He was in the tomb on Saturday, the Sabbath. That's day two. And just after sunrise on Sunday, when the day had just started, the Marys went to the tomb and found it empty. That was day three. It did not take very long into the third day for Jesus to be resurrected. That means, rather than counting years like we do, we should understand that Jesus could return at any point after the start of the third millennium, which will be 2033, give or take a few years. And if the pattern of the prophecies can be used to infer the times and seasons of Jesus' return, it won't be very long into the third millennium when Jesus will show up. Since we can't know the exact day or year when Christ will show up, we need to observe the relative sequence of clues that he left us to determine what season we're in. Moving on to the third term, the Great Tribulation, most people think it's equivalent to the 70th week of Daniel because they see all the events of the Tribulation as being initiated by God. In other words, the 70th week begins with the opening of the seal judgments, which are the wrath of God, which is the end times. They are all the same. Well, here's the interesting thing about these terms. When we try to force them to mean the same thing, we inevitably come up with a pre-tribulation rapture scenario because the church is not destined to experience the wrath of God, the church being the bride of Christ. Christ died for his bride, so the sins of Christians have been dealt with, which is the meaning of the scripture, there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. God's wrath is for the sinners whose sins have not been dealt with, those who are not allied with Christ. That is the whole point of the rapture, to remove the church from the earth before God deals with it. It's also the point of Jesus' parable of the bridesmaids. Some of the bridesmaids were prepared when the bridegroom entered the city because they had their lamps ready and lit. They were allowed into the marriage feast, after which the door was closed and locked. The other bridesmaids, who were unprepared and ran out to find fuel before the bridegroom arrived, had to scramble and in the process, they were locked out of the marriage feast. That's the image of the remaining church that's not prepared for the arrival of Jesus Christ in the rapture because they will lack something that Christ demands. The door will be shut, and some members of the church universal will not be able to open it and will be left outside on the earth where they will experience the full wrath of God. We will see that imagery again in this study of the parallel passages. So the parable is a reference to the church being raptured, or part of it anyway, and we'll see exactly when that happens because it's spelled out clearly in Scripture. The problem with making all of the terms fit into the same interval of time is that Christians will be experiencing tribulation up to the clearly stated point of the rapture. It occurs during the breaking of the seal judgments. So if the seal judgments are God's wrath, then the church has to endure part of God's wrath. And this is an example of how we get trapped by our own Christian lingo. The Bible does not use the term seal judgments. 
It just uses the term seals or seals. It speaks of breaking the seals on the scroll, the one that God hands to the Lamb who is Jesus. Yes, bad things happen when the seals are broken, but are they the judgments of God? Well, what's in the scroll? I've heard many people say that the scroll is the title deed to the earth, and maybe it is that, but I think it's more than that. The scroll contains not just the title deed to the earth, but the actual wrath of God. Breaking the seals is a necessary precursor to opening the scroll and releasing the wrath, but the seals are not the judgments. Those are held securely inside the scroll until it's opened. So what are the seals? They are authentications of the genuineness of the judgments that are inside the scroll. When the seals are broken, they precipitate an outward event. They induce Satan to rage because he knows that his time is very short. With the breaking of each seal, Satan unleashes an element of his plan for world domination by the Antichrist, which is a plan for evil and not for good. These parallel passages precede God's wrath, and they apply to a period when the church is still around, which is obvious from the context of the letters of Revelation 2 and 3. Even more important, we now understand that they are describing a series of activities in a technological era because they were written for our time. And how do we know this? Because the end times have not happened yet, and we already live in a technological era. Therefore, the prophecies must take place in a technological context, which is pretty amazing considering that all prophecy was written long before human beings had any technological understanding of the world. People might argue about when and who wrote the books of the Bible, but no rational person disputes that it was written and compiled long before the concept of science was even conceived, not even the most ardent atheist. So if the Bible talks about events that could only take place in a technological era, which would occur long after the books were written, then you can bet that God must be real and that he inspired the authors to write what they wrote. For those Christians who believe the events of Revelation are historic and not future, I remind you that at no point prior to the 20th century could the end times have occurred because certain requirements for the end times could not have been actualized. They were not remotely possible before the 20th and even the 21st centuries. The super sign that was needed to start the end times countdown was the miraculous re-establishment of national Israel in 1947. Israel arguably ceased to exist as a nation with the sacking of Jerusalem under King Nebuchadnezzar in 587 BC, as it never again exercised independent authority that was free of Gentile influence or domination. But even if you want to argue that Israel resumed its status as a sovereign power under the Maccabees, it is inarguable that it completely ceased to be a nation in 70 AD with the Roman destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. From that point on, there was no Israel, which is why some end-time systems place all the events of Revelation in the first century AD as it's the only period that would fulfill the requirements of Israel being a nation apart from the future. But the problem with doing that is that many of the prophecies don't fit the details of the time, such as Jesus establishing his millennial kingdom on earth physically in Jerusalem. The only way to fit the end times events into the context of a first century start to the millennial kingdom is to spiritualize the kingdom as being a heavenly kingdom and not an earthly one. But there's no reason to think that Jesus' kingdom is only a spiritual one, and if it were, then it must be a pretty poor spiritual kingdom. Who would dispute that the people of the earth are regressing spiritually and are getting more unrighteous by the day? It looks a lot more like Satan is in charge of the planet than Jesus Christ. Furthermore, Jesus came in a human body the first time he was here, and after he was crucified and killed on a cross, he was resurrected into a perfect body. Hundreds of eyewitnesses who knew him when he was alive saw him, spoke and listened to him after his resurrection, and they testified to that fact. Some of them even ate food with him. His own disciples witnessed his final physical departure from the earth on the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem. He had a human body when he left, and after he was gone, two angels said to the disciples, Men of Galilee, why are you standing here staring into heaven? Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, but someday he will return from heaven in the same way you saw him go. In the same way. In other words, Jesus will return in a physical body from heaven, and that body has not yet returned to this earth. So the events of the end times must still be future. The main prerequisite for the end times to commence was the reestablishment of national Israel. 
It is a prerequisite because two of the most important events of the end times require the existence of national Israel. They are the abomination of desolation, when the Antichrist sits in the temple and declares himself to be God, 2 Thessalonians 2, 3-4, and the Antichrist's stopping of the daily sacrifices in the temple, Daniel 9.27. There could never be a Jewish temple in Jerusalem without the nation of Israel first establishing or reestablishing control over Jerusalem because the Arabs would never allow it. There isn't a temple there today, although there are plans to build one. And the daily sacrifices can't be stopped unless they're first restarted, which only Jews would do since it's a Jewish ritual. And they have not been restarted as of today, although there are plans to do so. In addition, there are two more requirements for the end times that were not possible even theoretically until today. They are the ability to control the buying and selling of all goods and services worldwide through a mark of some kind, Revelation 13.7, and the ability to destroy all human flesh, Matthew 24:22. Because both of these events are now theoretically possible, the lead-up to the Great Tribulation could occur at any time. And both of these events are now arguably being implemented technologically as we speak, or I speak. Let's hear a little bit about what your government, in cooperation with the World Economic Forum, has in mind for your future. This comes from a March 2, 2022 Glenn Beck episode, where Glenn is communicating the words of the self-professed elitists and their plans for mankind in the near future. For those who have been paying attention to these things, this will not come as a great surprise, but at least it's gaining exposure on mainstream alternative media. Maybe not in the mainstream media, but we have to start somewhere. I want to give you a piece of news, uh, and I can give you the reports, or you can look them out up, up on your own. Uh, Advancing Digital Agency, The Power of Data Intermediaries, and Digital ID Framework that the WEF has published. Okay. Now, for those who think the Great Reset is not going to control every aspect of your life, let me give you a couple of things. They are, um, they are now taking the next step to shape global, regional, and industry agendas, end quote, uh, with a new digital ID system. Under the framework, the WEF proposes collecting data from many aspects of people's everyday lives. That's a quote. Through their devices, telecommunication networks, and third-party service providers. The WEF suggests that this data collection dragnet would allow a digital ID. Now listen to this. It's very narrow. It would allow a digital ID to scoop up data on people's online behavior, purchase history, network usage, credit history, biometrics, names, national identity numbers, and medical history, plus your travel history social accounts, e-government accounts, bank accounts, energy uses, health stats, education, and I love this one, and more. What's left? Once the digital ID has access to this huge, highly personal set of data, the WEF proposes using it to decide whether users are allowed to, quote, own and use devices, quote, open bank accounts, quote, carry out online financial transactions, quote, conduct business transaction, quote, access insurance and treatment, book trips, still quoting, go through border control between countries or regions, still quoting, access third-party services that rely on social media logins, file taxes, vote, collect benefits, end quote. So, you know, that little, that passport that they gave you, it was so crazy to think that maybe that COVID passport might grow into something, oh, exactly like this. In this advancing digital agency, the power of data intermediaries report, the WEF positions this digital ID framework as part of the solution to a trust gap in data sharing and notes that vaccine passports, which were mandated across the world during COVID-19, do, by nature, serve as a form of digital identity. The WEF also praises the way vaccine passports have allowed governments to harvest data 
from their populations, I'm quoting, without notice or consent. Oh, I love that when our government does that, don't you? Quoting, at a collective level, vaccine data is incredibly uh, incredible public health asset. The United Kingdom's government in particular has acknowledged this and has suggested uh, that they would uh, anonymize it. And data shield techniques that could be harnessed in controlled environments to allow for the reuse of that highly sensitive data. In such cases, notice and consent is not required per se for the reuse of data, but the intermediary processes the data undergoes must be done in a controlled environment so that the findings of the data set are made available rather than the data itself. Who's going to protect us? Additionally, the WEF provides a specific example of how digital IDs could be used to authenticate a user by using fingerprints, a password, or identity verification technology, and decide whether they should be granted, I'm quoting, access to a bank loan by judging their profile, which may include biometrics, name, national identity number, and history, which may include credit, medical, and online purchasing history. The WEF goes on to suggest that digital IDs will allow for the selection of preferences and making of certain choices in advance and ultimately pave the way for automated decision-making where a trusted digital assistant automates permissions for people and effectively manages their data across different services to overcome the limitations of notice and consent. This is great. They're also talking about turning your heartbeat into a digital ID. Uh-huh. And governments and private corporations increasingly embracing digital IDs. Some governments are also pushing a similar notion, social credit style apps that monitor citizens' behavior and reward them for engaging in state-approved actions. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. Now, let me just throw this on the fire for you. One of the most widely used services to check the creditworthiness of individuals and small businesses is FICO, F-I-C-O, right? Banks, credit unions, they examine your application for a loan. FICO is often the first place that they turn. When customers look up their credit score, they're usually talking about their FICO score. Now, we've suspected for quite a while that ESG scores, which are kind of a social credit score, similar to the ones that they're using in China, could someday soon be tied with personal credit scores so that a low ESG score could uh, cause your personal credit score to drop and your access to loans and mortgages along with it. But it's, it's rare to see even the staunchest ESG supporter openly admit something like that. However, let's go to FICO's website in a little piece titled Lending Predictions of 2022. From BNPL to ESG and more, in which a FICO senior principal consultant seems to suggest he believes in 2022, ESG could be directly linked to personal and small business credit scores. This is crazy. This will never happen. It is happening. What you're seeing happen to Russia right now, and praise Allah, it's happening. I am all for the the sanctioning of Russia, but the way they're cutting them off in all ways will be used against you unless you fall in line. So the plan for reestablishing some kind of all-controlling technological mark is well underway. This mark won't just control our ability to buy and sell, though. It will control every human activity because the rulers will have the ability to know everything about us and our environment, down to our behaviors, physiological reactions to stimuli, and thought patterns that come from that cryptic term, biometrics. God said that if he didn't shorten those days, the end times, for the sake of the elect, then no flesh would survive. As we move along in this series, we see how prescient this statement was with regard to how these technologies work 
and the goals of the satanic world forces that wield them. And to think that statement was made almost 2,000 years ago. So let's continue examining the critical end-time instructions that Jesus went out of his way to provide us through the Apostle John, who received them in a cave on a rocky penal island far out in the Aegean Sea almost 2,000 years ago. We are using the letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3 as our anchor texts because they contain the instructions that we Christians have been commanded by Jesus to carry out. The other two texts add detail and insights to the events that are in the letters and are important in understanding the context of the instructions in the letters. In chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, Jesus wrote letters to seven mysterious churches, and he used the names of famous churches in ancient Greece. They were the churches at Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now, there is a lot of debate as to whom Jesus was actually writing the letters to, with the most common idea being that they were historic churches with some problems that Jesus wanted to address. The next most common interpretation is that they are symbolic churches that represent particular problems of the church universal at particular points in history, or possibly that they are problems common to all churches in all historic periods. While these interpretations are interesting, I don't believe they're correct. If any of them are correct, it would mean that the letters have nothing directly to do with the book of Revelation, which would be an odd literary style for Jesus to employ, to say the least. It would make the letters either prophecies of pre-tribulation church events or epistles for the general edification of the church. They would not be prophecies of Revelation. I think Paul and the other apostles did a fine job with the epistles, and they didn't need Jesus to add to their already inspired writings prophecies of church events that predate the end times, much less lectures to churches in the first century, might be interesting from a church history perspective, but they would be unimportant with regard to the end times and out of context with the purpose of the book of Revelation. Now, Jesus writes better than that. These are not letters to individual church bodies or locations or the church universal through the ages, but to the church of the end times that will be experiencing the events that Jesus describes in each of these letters supplemented by the parallel prophecies of Matthew 24 and Revelation 6. And this is why it's important not to tie all the terms for the end times to the same period. The church universal is going to experience some tribulation in the end times, or the lead-up to the end times if you prefer to think of it that way, but it's not going to experience God's wrath in the end times, at least not all of the church. So up to this point, we have examined the letters to the churches at Ephesus and Smyrna, We saw that the church at Ephesus left its first love when it was confronted with a problem that originated outside the church, but caused it to stop doing what a church is supposed to do, which is to love and obey Christ above all else. One way the church demonstrates that it loves Christ above all else is that it keeps its doors open and continues to minister to those who want to worship God. Another is that it recognizes the evil of the day and confronts it even if it means the church leaders become unpopular and the target of man's wrath, whether inside or outside the church. When church leaders cower before the demands of evil authorities who impose rules and policies that are anti-God, anti-Christian, anti-church, and anti-man, those leaders have left their first love. The church in this letter did this, at least in part because it was confronted by a crisis from outside the church, a weapon that had been successfully wielded at a distance by a hidden governmental authority that masqueraded as a savior of some kind. Maybe it was masquerading as a health savior. Whatever it was masquerading as, many church leaders believed the secular savior figure and stopped doing their job properly. Jesus advised the church at Ephesus to recognize the deception, turn from the false secular savior figure, repent, and return to its first love, by speaking boldly and publicly against all things that are evil and anti-God. These leaders were advised to stop cowering in fear because of the deception of the government and do their job. Does this scenario ring a bell? Maybe we can learn how a faithful church is supposed to respond by looking at a recent example. In 2020, churches around the world were told to close their doors indefinitely because the world was being assaulted by a novel virus. John MacArthur, a pastor of a large church in California, said no. He was going to keep doing church no matter what the government said. Let's hear how God handled this situation with a faithful pastor. Whatever vestiges of 
Judeo-Christian ethics or whatever vestiges of Christianity were were still in the in the culture have have, have been evacuated. They're gone. I, I wouldn't even call this a postmodern culture. I would call it a pre-Christian culture. Pre. Pre-Christian. This is like paganism 2.0. Okay, it's as if Jesus never came. Yep. It's as if there never was a cross and a resurrection and a New Testament and a church and, and a Bible. This is, this is like Rome or like Molech worship or Baal worship. This is blatant paganism. And um, it, it is a kind of paganism that has levers to control everything with the control of the technology and social media. Um, what, this, what the current zeitgeist in the world hates most is the truth. I'll give you an illustration. We won our case with the COVID lockdowns with the county and the city. There were 12 different hearings that they set up for us. The judge in our case was a man married to a man. So-called married. Yeah. But he wasn't any ally of ours, that's what I'm saying. So, and yet, he kept postponing the 12 times. He postponed the case because he says, until you guys settle the First Amendment issue, we can't go to the merits of this case. So he kept pushing it back to the Constitution. Finally, in frustration, because I was being given a jail sentence every week and a fine, and they were all mounting and accumulating. And um, finally, our attorney said we want to depose the health department. We want to depose the top three officials in the L.A. health department. Our, our lawsuit was against the governor of the state, the county, and all of that. So we said we're going to depose the health officials. In 24 hours, they dropped all charges, all fees, all fines, and paid all legal bills, almost to a million dollars. Because the one thing they couldn't cope with was the truth. And that's the truth about COVID. They could not let that out. So they're trying to control everything to sustain the narrative. They don't even want you to, they don't want, the, the, the governor just is in the process of signing in California a bill that would Basically say, if you're a medical doctor in California and you go against the current narrative, you can lose your license. So they're trying to control everything. If they want to control those kinds of things, then how welcome, how much welcome will they give to the truth of Scripture? Virtually nothing. So I, I think it's a short step from controlling narratives about political issues and social issues and structural issues and education and medicine and whatever and whatever to shutting down the spiritual and the biblical. So I think that's coming. Um, and that's, I mean, that's going to be fish or cut bait, right? That's going to be, I mean, you're going to have to pick sides. Then you're either going to be faithful or you're going to compromise. As far as I know, Grace Community Church never closed its doors or stopped its normal activities in the face of extremely hostile government threats. John MacArthur and the other pastors correctly understood who they worked for and the commands they were given to operate a church. He stood courageously in the face of extreme physical and financial threats, and he is an old man, by the way. He was one of many pastors who stood as beacons of light in a dark time, a time when superstores and liquor stores and strip clubs and abortion clinics were deemed essential services and were permitted to keep operating unimpeded, but the church was a pariah and was told to close. Other pastors who stood firm suffered more than John MacArthur, including several in Canada who were jailed. And that is how it goes when you want to be a leader in the kingdom of Christ. Then we examined the persecuted church of Smyrna along with its corresponding scriptures. This is a church that will experience persecution from the government during a time of widespread national and ethnic turmoil, with war being threatened and practiced across the entire world. More deception will be unleashed by a shadowy group of leaders who direct governmental authorities to persecute Christians, some of whom are murdered. 
This widespread chaos and killing will be designed, funded, and directed by people whom Jesus described as those who say they are Jews but are not, who are a synagogue of Satan. This phrase does not refer to ethnic Jews who don't have the spirit of Judaism in them. It refers to people who masquerade as ethnic Jews, whom the world believes to be ethnic Jews, but who are not ethnic Jews at all. They are ethnic pagans. While they masquerade as Jews before the world, they practice satanic paganism, including the same demonic practices that got the nations evicted from the promised land before Israel. These closet Satanists practice all the detestable acts that God and every decent human being hates in places where the world can't see them, but where God can. Does any particular group come to your mind that fits this description? Some of you will understand, but if you're not in that group, don't worry. We'll get to that down the road a little bit after we've had some more preparation. Which brings us to our current text of Revelation 2, verses 12 to 17, the letter to the church at Pergamos, our letter of the day. It reads, And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works, and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you have also those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. This is perhaps the most difficult letter to understand, but when we properly understand what it means, we will receive a promise from Jesus that will carry us through one of the most difficult situations we can face, provided that we have the faith to believe it and follow our instructions. It is a moment when, metaphorically speaking, the spiritual men and women in Christ will be separated from the spiritual boys and girls. It will be a true test of faith. The parallel passages are Matthew 24 verses 7 and 8 and Revelation verses 5 and 6. Let's read them. First Matthew 24. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. And Revelation 6. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not waste the oil and the wine. These three passages may at first seem to be unrelated, but the situations described in each have a common problem. Did you catch it? They all have to do with a crippling worldwide food shortage and famine in many places. Let's start with some history. In the first century BC, the city of Pergamos was to be the center of emperor worship, its headquarters as it were, and a temple was constructed there for this purpose. Another temple, one dedicated to Zeus, the king of the pagan gods, was also constructed in the city at the top of the Acropolis. One of the practices of Zeus worship was to sacrifice a human being inside a hollow metal bull. The unfortunate victim was placed inside the metal container and roasted alive, after which his blood was smeared on the altar and the bone of the victim was made into a ritual memorabilia. In his letter to Pergamos, Jesus referenced a prominent Christian leader who was killed in this way for the crime of being a Christian who refused to worship the emperor as God. That's the historic context. Adolf Hitler was so enamored of the story of Pergamos and its altar that he had it replicated in Nazi Germany so that he could give a very famous speech on it. He placed his podium at the exact same position on the recreated altar as the sacrificial bull was positioned in the ancient temple. The reason Jesus said that Pergamum was Satan's throne is because the temple of Zeus was there. Since the temple of Zeus represented the top god of the pantheon, it was actually a temple to Satan. 
you and I should recognize that the Western nations we know and love today emerged out of this Roman Empire. We adopted its culture, its legal system, its governmental structure, and in many cases, its value system. The Roman Catholic Church emerged out of this satanic Roman Empire, and all the other Western churches emerged out of the Catholic Church. Isn't that ironic? So where is Satan's throne found today? That's a debatable opinion, but surely it must be located in the Western post-Roman world, maybe even in the most powerful of those nations. Washington, D.C., for example, was designed and constructed by Freemasons whose most senior leaders worship Satan, and the city itself contains lots of hidden symbols of Satanism that are embedded in the street layouts and in the monuments. It contains the world's largest obelisk, for example, which is the Washington Monument. Obelisks are Egyptian in origin and symbolize the fertility cult of paganism being an ancient fertility symbol. We Americans fund and support the world's most powerful and deadly military machine, one which is commanded and controlled from a building that's in the shape of a pentagram, the most sacred symbol of witchcraft, Satanism, and the Freemasons. In the letter, Jesus is saying to the church at Pergamos that it's operating in a climate of satanic power, and as a result, it has members who hold the doctrine of Balaam and practice the morality of the Nicolaitans. Now, who is this Balaam and who are the Nicolaitans? Recall that when the Israelites first entered the Promised Land, their reputation preceded them as being both violent and victorious in warfare. The king of Moab, a man named Balak, didn't want them anywhere near his kingdom, even though they were not planning on occupying Moab and were in fact distant relatives of his. In his human wisdom, Balak retained a pagan prophet named Balaam to curse Israel and get them to leave the area. It would be easier to tell this story if the names weren't so similar. God is able to use pagans as prophets if he chooses, and in this case, he chose a prophet who played on both sides of the spiritual aisle so that that prophet could bless Israel and articulate a famous prophecy. But that was not why Balaam was hired. He was retained to curse Israel, and a curse in those days meant the conjuring of divine power to affect a desired outcome, which we Christians today understand to be sourced from demonic power. Balaam intended to appeal to these demonic powers to drive Israel away from Moab, but God overruled his intent and forced him to bless Israel rather than curse it, thereby utilizing actual divine power for Israel's benefit. And he made Balaam bless Israel three times. That did not go over well with King Balak, who wondered why he was paying this prophet to bless his perceived enemy. To keep his paying patron happy, Balaam suggested that the king send a bunch of pagan women over to the Israelite camp to tempt the men to have sex with them and also to have the whole assembly eat defiled food that was sacrificed to idols, which are demons. These are two things that God specifically forbade the Israelites from doing. Thinking that was a great idea, King Balak sent the Israelites food dedicated to demons and women who lured them into sexually immoral acts. That's the historic context of the Revelation letter. Now, let's bring it forward to the current age. We don't dedicate food to demons, or at least most of us don't, so probably that's not the context. But we Americans do love our food, so we should ask ourselves if it would be essentially equivalent to dedicate our food to demons if obtaining the food carried with it a requirement that we participate in acts that God forbids. Remember, the context in the end times is a food crisis. There will be a famine taking place, which is exacerbated by violent unrest and warfare, droughts, supply chain disruptions, government programs that destroy food resources, and energy disruptions. Didn't the UN, for example, just recently declare that food shortages and regional famines are inevitable? Haven't the Western government said the same thing recently? Let's hear a little bit from Maria Z in Australia, who interviewed Clayton Llewellyn of Heaven's Harvest, a food supply company. We're joined now by Clayton Llewellyn from Heaven's Harvest, a sponsor of this show and many, many others. And can I just say Heaven's Harvest have been doing an amazing job in sponsoring alternative media, getting the truth out there about the reality of what's going on in this world. And Clayton and uh, Stu Peters together recently released a documentary, Shortage, which we will talk about. I think a lot of people, when they realize, uh, you know, that something's wrong with the world, they focus on a specific area. And I, for one, am grateful that we have people like you and your organization uh, focusing on this because it is a very, very real threat. We've seen hundreds 
of food manufacturing facilities. Just yesterday, I reported on on uh, the largest uh, wholesale processing plant in France, um, which is actually in the world in Paris, uh, being set on fire. And and it seems that these are being deliberately lit. Where where do you want to start with this, Clayton? Something's going on. There's way too many now to be a coincidence. As as to why they're being set or who's setting them, I don't know. This reminds me a lot of a couple years back when they were killing all the chickens. You remember when that was going through and it, everybody's like, you know, trying to figure out who it was and it ended up being a small group of people that are going, they were going through messing up the chicken coops. I mean, they killed millions and millions of chickens. I have a feeling we're going to probably find out it's another group of people like that. Um, and it's, I mean, we can sit here and talk all day about who or why, but the fact of the matter is it's happened. Like it's already happened. It's, it's crushed the supply chain and it's only going to get worse. Well, let's talk about some of the, the crushing of the supply chain because they're blaming. And when I say they're, I'm talking about the ones orchestrating this. They're blaming things like COVID and supply chain disruption because of COVID and lockdowns and, you know, um, whatever other reason, climate change, whatever other reason they can come but, up with. Uh, but that's simply not that's the case. What they do. That's what they do. They're just going to point the finger, but they've caused all of this. I mean, they, every bit of it they've caused. Fuel prices are insane. And a, a lot of, like we talked about in that in the video, like that affects so much of the food supply, you know, from the fertilizers being delivered to the tractors in the field, to the food coming out of the field, like the de- the cost of diesel's insane, and we haven't even seen it yet. Like the food we're eating today is from last spring. Like the food we're going to be eating going through the fall and the winter into next spring is coming is being harvested right now and was being grown with those like outrageous diesel costs. So I mean they've let diesel get out of control. The fertilizers, I mean rail, we we've, we've got a fertilizer shortage. And then railroads were going through saying that they were going to cut 20% of their deliveries this year of fertilizer. I mean, this is all part of like the UN, UN Agenda 2030. I mean, they've done it in several countries throughout the world. Sri Lanka, they went and said no more fertilizer in Sri Lanka. And you saw the riots in Sri Lanka. Like that's that's coming to Australia. That's coming to the United States. I think what you said there, and I saw this, you talking about this in shortage as well. What we're seeing now is a result of the last season's preparation but that's that's just simply not going to be the case moving forward and this is why they are telling us that food shortages are coming and they're giving us the alternative of bugs would you believe clayton that in australia we've just said that we've just announced recently that thousands of children will be eating bugs as of next year they've been feeding bugs to children without their parents knowledge or consent as part of Oh, we're just doing it because in the future we'll be eating bugs. It's just normal to these people. We're releasing chocolate-coated bugs as a dessert and th- and, and talking about it being a fantastic thing. I mean, what is the reality of, of what you're talking about in terms of this, this next harvest is not going to be anything like what we have now? What, what sort of shortages are we actually going to see? What does this look like? Maria, I've got a couple of things here. I, I, I had to write these down because there's so many of them. Sure. It, this, it's, it, it's an exhausting list, but this is just a quick, you know, a few of them here. 75% of the farmers in the United States this year say the drought has affected their crop. I mean, there's a huge drought in the United States right now. Um, it's the worst drought we've had in 1,200, or in 1,200 years. This is the worst drought we've had. 40% of the United States is suffering from a drought for 104 consecutive weeks. This has killed the crop this year. Rice is down, everything's down, corn production's down. Crop losses in Europe are projected at 50%. 50% of the crops in Europe are projected to be a loss this year. Italy, it's at 80%. Like this, and where it's not, and I'm not one of the climate people, or I mean, I you know, I believe the, the earth goes through cycles. We just happen to be in a tough cycle right now. And we have a government that isn't making it any easier. Um, you know. The Like you said, politicians all over the world have started to warn about this. A few months back, you know, I mean, Biden slipped up and said something. We had, I believe, the chancellor of Germany. Right now, the U.N. secretary general is stating there's going to be multiple famines in 2023. Like, they got shut down real quick. If If this gets out, like, hey, you need to start preparing right now, they'll wipe food off the shelves. They're not going to tell anybody about this. This is going to sneak up, and everybody's going to start to realize, oh, wait a second, like, 
there's this isn't there, that's not there. The baby formula shortage, that's still there. Is anybody talking about that? No, we can't make a big deal. We got to keep it hush hush. But I mean, that's still going on right now. So this is only going to get worse. The, the problem with human nature, Clayton, and you'd probably agree, is that people only tend to be outraged or take action when it personally affects them. And this is exactly what we're talking about here. We're talking about something that we don't visibly see yet. We haven't personally been affected by yet. But come next year, it's going to be a very, very different story. So you just shared some statistics with us. For the people that, that aren't really familiar with this subject, what, what do those statistics mean practically? I mean, what sort of shortages are we actually talking? Are we talking about no bread on the shelves? Are we talking about no milk, no eggs? Or are we talking about such a limited supply that you won't have any other option but to eat what they're offering? I mean, it's going to be extremely expensive. I mean, grocery prices are up, I believe, 13 or 14 percent already this year. There's going to be, I mean, the, the supply is going to be cut in half. And I believe this is kind of part of the plan is they want to take our food into where they can control it. They're really looking at like these vertical grow houses now where they control everything going in there. Monsanto, these huge seed companies, the huge fertilizer companies can control everything we eat. So, I mean, it's it's coming here, it's coming to Australia, it's coming to the United States. It's just a matter of time. And it's, I mean, people need to start getting prepared for this. We've just had, uh, I've been talking about this for some time, I've reported on it. We've got Aussie farmer Wade Northhausen from Billboard Battalion who's come on with, with me a few times. And he says, people just don't understand. There is the biggest food shortage and crisis coming. They will control everything that goes into your mouth. The freedom that you have right now, the produce that you have in your fridge, you're not going to have that come next year. It is a yep. serious, serious matter here. And I, I just wanted to bring up and... Um, I, I mentioned this to you. The Gateway Pundit published an updated list of US-based food manufacturing plants destroyed. They say under the Biden regime, you can now participate and add more incidents uh, on the interactive map, which is fantastic that they've added this. And there is also uh, there are also incidents from other countries, as the audience can see here. This is astronomical. We're talking about over 700 food manufacturing plants in the United States. I think it's over 750 now. Over 750 food manufacturing plants have been destroyed in America in just one year, and the food shortages leading to famines are coming. Nothing at this point is going to stop it. So in a period of dwindling food supplies and food scarcity, might not the world governments take advantage of the crisis by seizing the dwindling food supplies to ration them with conditions attached? The American government did that during the Great Depression and during World War II. The Western governments of Europe, Australia, and New Zealand recently established a precedent for doing that when they restricted unvaccinated individuals from patronizing stores and shops to buy food. Or to put it another way, didn't these Western governments just require people to get a shot in order to enter shops to buy food? Yes, they did. The precedent to require an action that may be an affront to God has already been established with regard to obtaining food. If something, say in a shot, will defile the physical body that God gave us to the point where we are forbidden from accepting it, and if getting said shot is made a condition of buying food in a store or from a vendor, particularly in an era of food scarcity and government restrictions, the question becomes, will we refuse to get the shot? And in the churches, if someone advocates for the congregation to accept bodily defilement because we all need food, and if they also encourage acceptance of immoral sexual practices among the parishioners that are socially acceptable and affirmed by the outside world, will we stand for righteousness and refuse to comply? Or will we cave to peer pressure by supporting those who participate in the sexual sin? These are all problems that the Church of Pergamos is going to face, and Jesus is advising his true followers that they need to overcome these problems. It's going to get very rough at that time, particularly with regard to food, as a day's wages for a laborer will only buy enough bread for one person for one day, which is not going to be enough to support a family. On top of that, there will be wars, pestilence, and violence for the average person to contend with. Meanwhile, the rich and powerful will have their needs taken care of, which is exemplified by the statement in Revelation 6.6, Do not harm the oil and the wine. The temptation to give in to the demands of the authorities will be strong, particularly for people with families. But there is good news for those who won't practice or condone immorality 
and who refuse to bow the knee to evil government requirements just to buy some food to eat. Jesus promises that those people who refuse to give in to pragmatism will be provided with the food that they need to survive, and God himself will provide it, just like he provided manna to the ancient Israelites when they needed food in the desert. If we pass the test and trust in and rely on God, then God will deliver on his end. That's the promise Jesus made to us in this letter. But I wonder how many people will take up God on the offer. None if they don't hear and understand what the prophecies really mean. Do you see why Jesus said that those who hear or read the prophecies and follow the instructions that are written in them will be blessed? And on the flip side, why those who do not hear, read, comprehend, or follow the instructions of the prophecies will be cursed. And this is only the lead-up to the main part of the Great Tribulation, which is when God will pour out His wrath on the earth. So all Christians will be on the earth for this preliminary part of the end times, but only a portion of them will be raptured out prior to God's imposing His own wrath on the earth. So what does that imply? It implies that this part of Scripture, while part of the period known as the end times, is not part of God's wrath. It also implies that the problems in this part of Scripture are not caused by God. If not by God, they must be caused by man, and by extension, by Satan. Jesus is giving the church instructions for this period of time because these tests must be passed in order for the Christians to be removed from the stage in the rapture before God unleashes his fury on the earth. The churches that don't pass these tests will be like the bridesmaids who did not have oil for their lamps. They will be left behind, an ominous warning to all Christians everywhere. So that is three of the letters to the churches down with four to go. If you can see the parallels with what's going on today, count yourself blessed by God. He has given you the eyes to see what is going on through this podcast. We need to recognize that if this is the lead up to the Great Tribulation, then we have passed through the first letter of Revelation 2 and the first horseman of Revelation 6, but have not quite gotten to the second letter of Revelation 2 and the second horseman of Revelation 6. We are hearing of wars and rumors of wars, but the widespread mayhem and killing has not yet started. Based on the mutterings of government officials and the press, the chaos may not be far in the future, followed quickly by the famines and new pestilences. Monkeypox, plague, smallpox, rabies, and who knows what other pestilence may be unleashed on the earth by the powers who play with biology and want to act like God. After the initial wave of Christian persecutions, the next obstacle we must get past is the food crisis and whatever defilement will be pushed on us when it happens. We take seriously when God says, My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge, Hosea 4.6. I, for one, don't want any listeners to be destroyed for a lack of knowledge. God didn't say, those people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. He said, his people are destroyed. Take that any way you want, but it's a warning to his people. Jesus added, follow me to his commandment in Matthew 24 not to be deceived. Literally, don't be led astray. He did not advise us to follow the crowd. He did not admonish us to follow the government. He did not recommend that we listen to the professionals, be they scientific, medical, legal, or religious. He told us to follow him, and part of following him is following his instructions, even where and when we don't particularly want to, and even when we are afraid of what will happen to us if we do. Maybe that's why Jesus also said, In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. That is not only a promise for his accomplishments today, but a promise that we will share in those accomplishments in the future. But for now, we have to face the problems of today because Jesus also said, Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Matthew 6.34 I hope you have enjoyed this broadcast that at least caught us up on our Revelation study. Now that all my vacations <clears throat> and most of my sicknesses are fading into the rearview mirror, this podcast should be back on track. If you found this podcast interesting, useful, or important, please recommend it to someone you know and give it a happy face, a high five star, or whatever else your app has to encourage others to listen. Underground Christian can be heard on several fine podcast platforms, including Podbean, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Audible, TuneIn, iHeart, Player FM, Listen Notes, Pandora, Samsung Podcasts, and Podchaser. 
If you wish to contact me, please send an email to undergroundchristian at outlook.com. Now you might be wondering how these nefarious globalists could accomplish all this and not be humbled by the governments of the world. Next time, we will hear a blockbuster interview that will break open how they did it, how deep the corruption goes in our own government, and how long this has been in the planning. Thank the Lord Almighty that we have Jesus Christ leading our team, because there's no other power on this earth that could possibly liberate us from this corrupt, diabolical evil. If you think some white hats are going to come riding over the horizon to liberate the world from this giant new technological concentration camp that's being constructed around us, it will shatter your hope. Trust in Jesus alone.